So as I mentioned a moment ago, the sermon text for this morning is Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. And uh, Emily just read chapters 12 through 14 for us. I'm going to read now chapter 15. And, uh, you know, you may be wondering, you may be sitting there wondering why in the world are we reading about uh, itching diseases and um, bleeding and mold in houses and all of these things? Why are we reading Leviticus chapters 12 through 15, period? And uh, there there are a couple of good answers for that. One is that we really believe here that this is God's word. Uh, This this book, the book of Leviticus, is God's word. And so we, uh, God has given it to us. It's part of his gift to us. And and that means if he gave it to us, it means we need it. even the book of Leviticus, we need even the book of Leviticus. So, so we read it because we know there's something in here that God has to say to us, something that none of the other books say. Um, uh, God, God gave this book for a purpose. You know, another reason that goes along with that is we also believe that all of Scripture is actually about the gospel. <laughs> so that even Leviticus 12 through 15, uh, these laws uh, about uh, impurity, about cleansing, about mold and uh, leprosy or skin diseases, even these laws are somehow about the gospel or point us forward to Jesus, drive us to Christ. And so hopefully we're going to see that this morning. Uh, so chapters 12, 14, 12 through 14 were read for you already. I'm going to uh, finish our sermon uh, text reading by reading chapter 15. Before I do that, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, uh, for the gift of of your word. Uh, We thank you um, that your word is is truth. Uh, We thank you that, um, we thank you, Father, that you speak to us through the scriptures. We pray that you would do that this morning, uh, even through Leviticus. We pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts. Um, We pray that you would show us Jesus in his glory this morning, that you would draw us closer to him. Uh, and that we would rest more fully in his sacrifice in light of what we read this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus 15, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening." And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is, uncle- who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his body in fresh water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. 
When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day... She shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an omission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with the woman who is unclean. There is a novel called Wonder that's about a boy named Augie. And this boy is uh, born with an extreme facial deformity. And when he's very young, Augie didn't go to school. And the, the book actually opens with him entering middle school for the first time at a school called Beecher Prep. It's a book about uh, dealing with differences. It's a book about uncleanness. It's a book about shame. During Augie's first year of middle school, of course, he has to deal with the prejudices of preteen life. And he eventually realizes uh, through the course of the book that no one wants to touch him. And he says, I, I noticed not too long ago, it's, the book is written in the first person, I noticed not too long ago that even though people were getting used to me, no one would actually touch me. I, I didn't realize this at first because it's not like kids go around touching each other that much in middle school anyway. And he goes on to recount the story that made him realize this stigma and then he ends with these words. He says, I think it's like the cheese touch in Diary of a Wimpy Kid. The kids in that story were afraid they'd catch the cooties if they touched the old moldy cheese on the basketball court. At Beecher Prep, I'm the old moldy cheese. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like old moldy cheese? Like an outcast? or like you didn't fit in, or like there was something wrong with you and everyone else knew about it, or like you had a contagious disease, except you didn't have a contagious disease, but you and everyone else treated you like you did. That feeling is shame. It comes from this sense that somehow I'm unclean. Somehow there's something wrong with me. Well, our text this morning, these four chapters, are about being unclean before God. Our outline, uh, which I think is in the back of your bulletin, uh, is that uncleanness is a picture of death. We are all unclean. Our uncleanness makes us outcasts. But God has provided a remedy to cleanse us and give life. So we start with the bad news, points one, two, and three, and then we get to the good news in point four. So first, the bad news. 
Uh, point one, uncleanness is a picture of death. There is a lot that happens in these four chapters, you may have noticed. So I'm going to sketch very, very broadly what goes on in them for, for you. Uh, chapter 12 deals with uncleanness that comes after childbirth. Uncleanness that comes after childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14 then deal with uncleanness that comes from various kinds of skin or surface conditions. The Hebrew word is translated leprosy, but it's not leprosy the way you and I think about leprosy, uh, but various surface anomalies. So it, it could be flaky human skin. It could be mold in your clothes, right? That's not leprosy. It could be mold on the wall in your house. That's not leprosy the way we think of it. Um, the, the, again, the, it's all called leprosy, or really the Hebrew is a, is a word, you know, you really need to know this, right? Uh, if I can pronounce it, tsara'at. But it's translated leprosy. So uh, leprosy is what we're going to use, not sara'at. Um, so we have 12, uh, uncleanness that comes after childbirth. 13 and 14, uncleanness that comes from leprosy, skin disease of some kind. And then you have chapter 15, which deals with uncleanness that comes from bodily fluids related to conception. So 12, childbirth. Okay, got that. 15, conception. Okay, I see how those two relate. Childbirth, conception, got it. And then in the middle, we have skin conditions, which don't seem to relate at all. And yet they're sandwiched there in the middle, bookended by these chapters on childbirth and conception. And the question is, how do these things hold together? Right? How do these four chapters hold together? And let me give two answers to that. Uh, the, the first has to do with well, uncleanness. Uncleanness is a ritual state, a ritual state in Israel of being that came about because there was something wrong with you, right? In particular, the pollution of sin, the reality of death and brokenness was somehow on you. Uncleanness in Israel was not medical or moral, right? Not medical or moral, but it was ritual and symbolic. And so the unclean in the Old Testament should not be equated with sin, uh, giving birth is not sinful, right? And, and someone with a skin disease is not sinful. They're not necessarily being punished, right? It's not what this is about. But there's some symbolic tie between being the, the ritual unclean state and the spiritual pollution of sin, right? So what, what is the tie here? Well, each of these conditions are symbolic of death, how, how is that? Well, in, in chapters 12 and 15, one of the main problems is the loss of blood. What makes, uh, what makes the woman unclean after childbirth is not childbirth, if you read closely, but chapter 12, verse 7 says it's the flow of the new mom's blood that follows. Right? So it's the, the flow of blood that follows that makes her unclean. Uh, verse 15 also talks about a discharge of blood, whether normal or abnormal. And of course, as we've read through Leviticus, Leviticus is really, there's a, it says a lot about blood, doesn't it? I mean, it's all over the place. Uh, it says the life is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 17, I think it is. Blood ritually symbolized life. Blood ritually symbolized life. To lose Blood, therefore, symbolically, right, I just want to emphasize that, symbolically, right, was a loss of life. Something similar can be said of the man in Leviticus 15. So for him to have a discharge was to lose his seed, his life-giving seed. And that's the word used in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, seed. And so in 12 and 15, you have life flowing, literally flowing, out of people, right? The life is flowing out of them. If your life is flowing out of you, right, that's death. Uh, that's death. Chapters 13 and 14, then, uh, discuss what's commonly called leprosy, the skin diseases. Don't really correspond to any particular known skin disease, uh, as far as I can tell, as far as the commentators tell me. Um, the point is not medical, then what is the point? Well, the answer is actually given in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 12. There in Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam oppose Moses, right? They're upset with Moses. They oppose him. And God disciplines Miriam in Leviticus chapter, I mean, Numbers chapter 12. God 
disciplines Miriam with leprosy. And what is uh, instructive is how Aaron responds in Numbers 12. Here's what Aaron says. Aaron says to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. See, the problem with these skin conditions was not that they were highly contagious physically or even dangerous to the person who has them. The problem was they have the appearance of death. It looks like the person is decaying. The problem with those with these skin diseases is that they look like the walking dead. That's why a person with leprosy in uh, chapter 13, verse 45, must tear his clothes and let his hair hang loose, right? These are mourning rituals. What is this person mourning? He is mourning for himself because he has become like one who is dead. He's mourning his own death. So, on the one hand, what, what unifies these chapters are these visible symbols, ritual symbols of death. God is holy. God is a God of life. Death cannot approach him. Hence, the, the ritual status of being unclean for those who are kind of a moving picture of the living dead. Now, another thing which unifies these chapters uh, is this. You know, why are the priests only concerned about skin disease and mold on clothes and mold on walls, right? Um, what about mold on your furniture? That actually wasn't a concern, apparently, because if you had mold on your walls and a priest was going to come and inspect it, before the priest came, you were supposed to take everything in your house out so that if the priest did declare the house unclean, all your stuff wasn't declared unclean as well. Now, if, if the problem were, if we were thinking about cleaning up mold, we would be concerned about that furniture, right? Because if there's mold in the house, maybe there's mold in the furniture too. Priest wasn't concerned about that. This was a ritual thing, right? Again, problem was not medical. It was ritual. And um, the priest was only concerned about mold in the walls or mold in your clothes or skin disease. Why not mold in your furniture? Why not mold in your cooking pot, right? What is significant about those three things? Skin, clothes, and walls. Well, skin, clothes, and walls are all boundaries. And this is about the breakdown of proper boundaries. And not only that, but there are three boundaries mentioned, right? The, the walls around us, the clothes on us, the skin. There are three boundaries listed. And think about the world of Israel. Think about the priestly world of Israel. What else has three boundaries? The tabernacle. That's right. Thank you for answering. Uh, uh, right? You have the outer court. You have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place, right? These three boundaries. And God is concerned throughout Leviticus with the boundaries that protect his own holiness, right? God symbolically dwelt in the most holy place. God is also concerned with the boundaries that protect the, the holiness or the integrity of his people. And if God is the giver of life who dwells in the most holy place, it, it's humanity's ability to give life that is pictured here as being holy. That's why in 12 and 15, right, where the life, particularly the life-giving power, is being drained out of people, that causes them to become unclean. And so what is sacred, what is holy, is losing its power, losing its strength, which puts human beings in a state of uncleanness. They're imperfectly reflecting the holy, life-giving power of God. The boundaries have been breached, so to speak, and the life is draining out. So chapters 12 through 15 give us this symbolic picture of, of death, but particularly for the decay of the body as a temple, losing its life-giving power. Okay, so uncleanness, it's a picture, it's, it's a ritual, symbolic picture of death. Okay, point two, we are all unclean. Let me expand that. We are all, in Israel, uh, they were symbolically, but we are all made unfit to dwell with the Father and his people by a deep, corrosive, spreading, persistent 
uncleanness that comes from within. You know, as we turn uh, now, the question we want to ask is, what, what does ritual uncleanness teach us? What does the ritual uncleanness in these chapters teach us about our own moral uncleanness, right? Take the ritual, which ended with Israel, and apply it to us, to the moral. And make no mistake, the connection is there, right? In fact, it's not just a New Testament connection. Isaiah himself brings this connection out. Uh, You may remember there's a famous passage in Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6. That famous passage says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And Isaiah there is referring to uh, the, the garment a woman would use in her uncleanness, a polluted garment. That's the phrase Isaiah is using. And if you look at the context in Isaiah, Isaiah is saying we, in our sin and in our iniquity and in our rebellion, we are unclean like that. That's what Isaiah is saying. We are unclean like that. Our best deeds, Isaiah says, when we think we've done something really great for Jesus, are like a polluted garment itself. That's what Isaiah says. And so what does ritual, the ritual uncleanness of their bodies in Israel teach us about the moral uncleanness of our souls? Notice a couple of things about the skin condition. What made one person's skin condition unclean while others were okay, right? I mean, chapter, chapter 13 is all about diagnosing skin conditions. But there were patterns, right? Some of the same phrases came up again and again. I'm not going to read them all again. But uh, look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I will read that. The Lord uh, spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. So the, the unclean condition, what's wrong, right? what, what makes one person unclean while another is clean? The unclean condition is somehow changing the person, his hair color is changing, and it's more than skin deep, right? If it's deeper than the skin, that's one of the signs. You, you read it again and again in chapter 13, even into 14 maybe. Again and again, if it's deeper than the skin, that's one of the signs. Uh, well, what else? Well, we could keep reading it in verse 4. Through eight, but if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin. Okay, we could keep reading, but there's the key. What is the priest looking for? The priest is looking to see if the disease has spread or if it has faded. Okay, so uncleanness is, is deep, right? deeper than the skin. It's corrosive. It's changing the person's hair color. It's changing them. It's deep, it's corrosive, and it spreads. It's not fading, it's spreading. Uh, the text also uses words like chronic in chapter 13, verse 11, and persistent in chapter 13, verse 52. So there's this uncleanness that clings to us, right? It won't let go. Okay, have you ever felt like there's something wrong with you? It's more than skin deep. It negatively affects who you are. It seems to be getting worse that you just couldn't shake it. Well, maybe you have leprosy. <laughs> or, right, maybe the pollution of sin has stained your soul. That, that's what's going on here. That's the symbolism. There's something deeply wrong with us. And, and think about what chapters 12 and 15 add to this list. Where does the uncleanness come from in 12 and 15? It comes from within. Right? Discharges, emissions, bleeding, the uncleanness comes from within. And that shouldn't really surprise us because Jesus said as much in Mark 7, right? He said, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. 
Sometimes we think when Jesus says that, he's correcting the Old Testament. But he's not correcting the Old Testament, he's just interpreting it. That's what the Old Testament tells us, that our uncleanness comes from within. And notice, you know, most of the impurity in these chapters is completely out of our hands. These are things that just happen. They're unavoidable. Bleeding after birth, uh, skin rashes, loss of bodily fluids, right? These aren't things that you do. They're not a choice. These are things that just happen. It's your body. It's who you are. One of the things this meant for Israel is that uncleanness actually in some ways probably didn't have quite the stigma that we think because everyone was unclean at some point. You, You could not avoid it. Everyone was unclean at some point. One of the things it teaches us is that, in the words of Isaiah, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or behold, the Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Romans 3, all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Or Proverbs 20, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. The brokenness clings to all of us. Sin is in our hearts. Rebellion is in our hands. And scripture asks at one point, at two points actually, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And its answer is, he who walks blamelessly. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, our walk is not blameless and our hands are not clean and our heart is not pure. We are unclean with this deep, corrosive, spreading, persistent death that comes from within. Something we cannot shake, something we cannot avoid. This should actually affect positively the way we treat other people when they sin. Think about it, right? We we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't act like we are any better. We shouldn't shame them into conformity. We should sympathize with them in their weakness because we've all experienced the same kinds of things. Do we call people to something better? Of course we do, but, but all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We're no different. You know, it, it happens all the time. You, you re- read the newspaper or you hear something on the radio or you watch the news on TV and you think, how could that person possibly do that thing? How could they do that? The truth of the matter is, our hearts are just as capable as whatever it is they, they did. Or, or parents, we, maybe I should say I, but we, I'll implicate you too, we're particularly bad at this, this whole sympathy thing with our children, right? How often have you found yourself saying, what did you think you were doing? Why are we so shocked? Is it because we forgot that our children were sinful? Or is it because we think that we ourselves are above such sinful behavior? Paul calls us in Galatians to restore others in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over our own souls, right? In full recognition that we ourselves could fall at any moment. Not in a spirit of surprise, thinking that we are beyond such things, right? We are all unclean, every one of us. Well, it gets worse before it gets better, I'm sorry to say. But so one, uncleanness is a picture of death. Two, we are all unclean. And three, our uncleanness makes us outcasts, right? The uncleanness of our souls makes us untouchables, outcasts, and brings shame. Uh, Look at Leviticus uh, 13, verses 45 and 46. 45 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. What happens to the leprous person? He is forced to live outside the camp 
alone. Um, Notice this is not a remedy, right? The priests aren't doctors. The priests are guardians of the holy. And he tears his garments and he lets his hair hang loose. And, And again, these are activities of mourning over death. That's what you do if one of your relatives would die. You would tear your clothes and you would let your hair hang loose, right? Well, the leper mourns his own death. His life is over. He looks like a dead man. And he is cut off from the life of flourishing among the people of God. He has to live outside the camp. You know, being put, of out, being put out of Israel, being cut off with contact, uh, from contact with the people that you love, that was to be as good as dead. It's like Adam and Eve being deported from the Garden of Eden, right? This is death. For others, the restrictions uh, weren't quite as long or weren't quite as harsh, but the point is the same, right? The uncleanness cuts you off from God and others, right? You couldn't enter God's house. You couldn't even enjoy fellowship with God's people without making them unclean as well, right? You were essentially cut off from blessing. It's what our sin does, isn't it, right? Our sin destroys our relationship to God, destroys our relationships among people, Sin, if left unchecked, will finally leave us alone, left to face the uncleanness of our own heart outside the camp. That's actually the way Jesus describes hell at one point. You may remember uh, uh, Jesus is talking, and first he talks about heaven as a banquet, right? He describes heaven as a banquet. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's this festive, joyous occasion where everyone's coming and partying and eating together and being together and loving one another. There's this fellowship and joy. And then Jesus goes on, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast out from God's people alone. We, we already know that feeling of alienation, don't we? At some point in your life, you've probably experienced it. Most of us in this room, I know I have, right? Just feeling like, like I don't fit in, like I don't belong, like I'm on the outside of whatever group I'm among physically. And, and think about, we... we we often cause this ourselves. I mean, what are some reasons that we might treat people as unclean? What are some reasons that we treat people like outcasts? You know, there are big categories, right? Uh, sometimes like education, economic status, ethnicity. There are less significant reasons like musical taste or style of dress or accent or speech or appearance or weight, right? Huge in our culture where we draw, draw lines and we put Everybody on that side of the line, I'm on this side of the line, and we, we look down on people. Or less defined reasons, like that person is just annoying or, or weird or talks too much or doesn't talk enough or, or is unsociable, whatever the case. Anything that divides, right? Could be neighborhood, could be school, whatever. We have all kinds of lines that we draw, all kinds of reasons that we declare people unclean. But remember, where does real uncleanness lie? Where does it come from? Not in what school you went to or the color of your skin or your body mass index, right? We are unclean with a deep, corrosive, spreading, persistent uncleanness of our souls. How deep is it? It's in my soul. How corrosive? It affects everything. My thoughts, my words, my deeds, right? How persistent is it? I can't scrape the uncleanness off my soul the way I can clean uh, dog poop off my shoes, right? The one is easy. It's yucky, it's dirty, but it's easy. The other one is yuckier and dirtier, but I can't do it. I can't scrape it off my soul. There are things in our souls that bring deep shame, and when they come out, we're we're ostracized or outcast. There are sins, there are secrets. The question is, what are those things in, in your soul that bring you shame? What are those things in your soul that you hope no one ever finds out about? No one ever knows. Of course, we've said before uh, that uncleanness doesn't only come from sin, but it also comes from being sinned against. What sins of others have left their stain on your soul? What things make you feel like an outcast or an outsider or alone? Things which cause you to hide or cause you to lie or cause you to cover up. Which show, by the way, that your relationships are not open and not free, but hindered by sin and shame because you're hiding, you're lying, you're putting up a wall. 
a barrier. Okay, that's the bad news. That's all the bad news. <laughs> uncleanness is a picture of death. We are unclean, and our uncleanness makes us outcasts. But the good news of chapters 12 through 15 is that God has provided a remedy and gives life. A remedy to cleanse us and to give life. And we could expand that by saying God has provided a remedy to cleanse us through washing with water and sprinkling with blood and anointing with oil and in so doing, restore us to community with others and fellowship with himself. Right? He's provided a remedy to restore us. And so uh, consider uh, chapter 15, verse 13. Just again, we're not going to look at every place. There's a lot of repetition here, but we'll look at a couple places. Leviticus 15, 13. And when the one with a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. What is it that cleanses in that, clay, that case? It's the washing with water, right? You, you, we read that a lot. There was a lot of washing going on in these chapters, a lot of uh, water, a lot of washing of clothes and washing of bodies. Or consider uh, Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 7. 6 and 7 say, uh, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Okay, what is it that cleanses the unclean there? Well, there it's not washing with water, but the shedding of blood, right? The offering cleanses her. Notice in both of those cases, really throughout, it, it's never, you're never clean just because the affliction stopped, because the category is ritual, right? Not physical, but ritual. And so you're, only, you're unclean until the priest tells you you're not, because it's a ritual uncleanness. It's not just the physical thing. The priest has to declare you clean. So the washing of water cleanses, the shedding of blood cleanses. And then in chapter 14, there's this ceremony for restoring the leper to the community. It's actually, the ceremony is repeated twice. You may have noticed as uh, Emily read through it. And it's repeated twice because of different offerings for the wealthy and for the poor. Uh, there are offering, uh, there's the offering of the birds. That happened on day one of the cleansing of the leper, the restoration of the leper. Then there was bathing on day one and day seven. So we have both of those, right? Both the offering of the birds, the shedding of blood. Uh, then there's bathing on day one and day seven. Finally, there's the eighth day, starting in verse 10 of Leviticus 14. And there are four offerings on the eighth day, the, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering. It's almost a whole gamut of possible offerings, right? And, and the priest takes the blood from the guilt offering and he does something odd. He places it on the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right big toe of the person who is to be cleansed. And then he does the same thing again with oil. Whatever oil remains, he pours on the leper's head. But he first puts some on his ear, some on his right thumb, th some on his right toe. And what's striking about this ceremony, uh, maybe you remember from a few weeks back, it involves the same motions, the same rituals that were used for the ordination of the priests. So that putting blood on the earlobe and on the right thumb and on the big toe of the right foot. The same motions involved for the ordination of the priest. And the idea is the leper was outside of the people of God, right? He was outside the camp. He had lost his right to be a part of the people of God. He was unclean. He was put outside the camp. He must be born again into the community. He needs a change of status from death to life. And so we have this repeated mention, you, you may have noticed, of seven days, like the creation of the world. Then on the eighth day, the, the leper is, the former leper, is ordained back into the people of God, right? The water and the blood and the oil lead to his restoration. He has a new status. Like the priest, when they were ordained, they gained a new status, the status of priest. This guy doesn't gain that status, but he does gain a new status, a status of being a full member of the people of God once again. A status of life instead of death. Now this whole uh, system, right, of being declared unclean, being made unclean, may seem kind of barbaric to us. I mean, God has these elaborate rituals, right, with water and blood and oil, and, which restore people to community and fellowship. 
And it, it, it seems odd, again, maybe even barbaric, but actually it was, it was a great mercy to have a definite system of being readmitted into the community. And I want you to, to think about this for a minute. Um, when someone feels shame in our culture, when someone is shamed, or when they're ostracized, or when they're avoided, how can they remove that shame? What can they do? How can they be brought back in? What's, what's sort of the ceremony? What's the, what are the, the, the things that a person does to remove their shame and, and be brought back into a community and, and accepted once again? We actually have no way in our culture of removing shame. There's nothing we do to remove it. Um, shame is pervasive, and the only way to get rid of it is maybe, maybe to, to build yourself back up, to sort of prove yourself uh, in the eyes of others, to prove that you're worthy again of their acceptance. And, and for many who are stigmatized in our culture, there, there's no way of removing that stigma. Think about the, the shame that our culture associates with things like poverty or weight or being an ex-con or being abused. Right? We associate shame with those things. There are various other ways that we shame people, but there's no way for people to get out from under that shame. And so, you know, think about it, which is more humane, right? To have a system where uncleanness can be removed objectively and definitely and permanently, or to live in limbo about your status before others, always wondering, uh, being afraid uh, that others might declare you unclean and you will have to live with the shame of that. Others might ostracize you or, or put you out because of whatever rule that you may have broken and you have no way of being restored. And while there are plenty of ways that we, that our culture, that society, that we shame one another, most of our shaming others is using kind of worldly standards in an attempt to quiet our own real shame. Right? We shame others in an attempt to quiet our own real shame, the shame of our sinfulness before our Heavenly Father. You know, the first result of sin in the Bible is shame. The eyes of Adam and Eve are opened. What are they opened to? To their own nakedness. To the fact that they're exposed and they want to hide. Why do they want to hide? Why does the exposure matter? It didn't matter five minutes ago. Why does it matter now? Because they're ashamed. They're ashamed of who they've become. They're ashamed of what they've done. And they want to hide. Shame is this sense that I'm unclean before God because there's something wrong with me now. I haven't lived up to the Father's pattern for reality. He created something beautiful, but I've marred it and I've made it ugly. And now everyone seems to be staring at me, right? Everyone sees my sin. Everyone sees my rebellion. Everyone sees my guilt. Everyone sees my shame. So I want to run and hide. Well, what is to be done about that? I mean, what do we need to be restored to our Father and restored to the community of his people? Well, we need to be cleansed by water and blood and oil, just like the leper. You know, we, we do live in a world where there are dozens of distinctions, right? Distinct, dozens of rules about clean and unclean. Everybody has different rules about clean and unclean, which is one of the things that makes it so hard, right? Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, black and white, thin and fat, academic and uneducated, right? Pick your pair, Right? We have all kinds of ways that we declare people unclean. Have you ever thought about that in relationship to baptism? Bear with me, right? Uh, no, I haven't, actually. Uh, what does baptism do? Baptism is, is the ritual cleansing in the, in the church, right? I mean, there are all kinds of ritual cleansing in, in the Old Testament. Baptism is it, right? We only have one. <laughs> baptism is the ritual cleansing in the church. Through baptism, what happens is all those old distinctions, they're, they're wiped away. When you're baptized, you're declared holy, belonging to God, a member of God's people, the church. Now, the waters of baptism, right, they don't save you. They don't regenerate you. Uh, they don't justify you. Um, just because you have been baptized doesn't mean your sins are forgiven apart from faith in Jesus, right? But in baptism, we are declared holy. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, says children of believers are holy, right? Holy. Uh, it doesn't say they're saved. It doesn't say they're forgiven, it, right? But it does say that they are holy. They have a different status. That's one of the reasons we feel free to baptize children of believers, right? Because they're already holy. Baptism just acknowledges that, <laughs> Um, but the point is, there, baptism does something. It declares 
us to be holy. Once you're baptized, since you're holy, you're no longer part of the common sphere of life. The old distinctions, clean and unclean, Jew and Greek, they no longer apply. They're irrelevant for you now. Through baptism, all those worldly distinctions that divide people, that bring shame, that make people outsiders, those distinctions are set aside. We are brought into the sphere of the holy. We're members of the people of God, the church. We're given access again to the Father, and we are now part of His people. That's what defines us now. When you're baptized and brought into the church, what defines you is you're a member of God's people. What defines you is not right, all of those other things. What defines you is I'm a part of the people of God. So that's water, right? Cleansing. And then there's blood, right? First John. 1, 7 to 10, verses that I read a lot up here, but say this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, when we acknowledge our sins before the Father, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, cleansed from all sin, cleansed of unrighteousness. Our uncleanness is removed by the blood of Jesus as we confess it. Our shame is removed by the blood of Jesus as we confess it. And think about it, that's the opposite of what we want to do with shame. Adam and Eve's first response to shame is to hide, to cover David in Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, when I hid, when I didn't acknowledge, when I tried to cover up what was going on in my heart, it was groaning and wasting away. Then David goes on to say, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, our instinct is to hide shame so that no one sees it. God calls us to bring it into the light so that he can remove it. Now, how many of us hold on to shame because we don't want to be exposed? Uh, We don't want people to know what we have done or what has been done to us. And so we hold on to shame. We protect it of all things. When God says if we would only expose it, he would remove it by the blood of Jesus. So we're declared holy by baptism. We're no longer a part of the systems of shame of this world. We're part of the church, the people of God. And we are cleansed of our sin by the blood of Jesus. But that's not the end. We have water, we have blood, and we have oil. Right? Oil, the, the, the act of placing oil on the head is called anointing, right? The, the priest would put oil on the leper, on his ear, on his thumb, on his toe, and then on his head, that's called anointing, right? Anointing with oil. And, Jesus, and John, in, the gospel, in uh, 1 John, John says that the church has been anointed by Jesus and that his anointing abides in us. What is the anointing that John is talking about there? We have been anointed with the, not with oil, right, but with the Holy Spirit. We have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Adoption is the opposite of rejection, right? I mean, being a child is the opposite of being an outcast. The anointing of the Spirit is what bears witness to the fact that we are God's children. We are a part of His family. Do you ever feel uh, broken, right? Not whole, not fully alive, physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, whatever? Uh, Do you ever sit in that shame or feel like an outsider? What brings you out of that? Here are three things that testify to the Father's love for you in Christ, right? The water and the blood and the spirit. The waters of baptism show that God does not approach us with the world's standards of clean and unclean. God does not judge us the way the world does. The blood of Jesus shows that that we have been cleansed from all sin. So the one thing God does judge for has been removed, And the gift of the Spirit, the anointing, as as oil showed the leper that he was again part of the people of God, so the Spirit shows us that we are welcomed back into the family of God, 
We are accepted and loved. All right, in light of all that, here, here's your mission this week. If you have not trusted in the blood of Jesus, right, put your faith in him. And if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus, put your faith in him. And know that your shame has been removed. That the world's system of shame, they're irrelevant for you, right? You're in Christ. That is your status. That is who you are. You belong to Jesus. And then demonstrate that. Demonstrate the Father's acceptance by, by your openness about your own sin and frailty. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to cover. You don't have to lie. Your sin, your shame, the, the sting has been removed by the blood of Jesus. And then demonstrate that, demonstrate the Father's acceptance by refusing to shame others by the world's categories, right? But instead showing them the same love and the same acceptance that God has shown to you. You know, Jesus once allowed himself to be touched by a woman with a flow of blood, right? Just like Leviticus 15 talks about. And Jesus reached out and touched the leper, just like Leviticus 12 or 13 and 14 talk about. He was taking their uncleanness upon himself. He became ritually unclean by that. He was taking their uncleanness upon himself. And he was demonstrating that these old categories of clean and unclean are really no more. He was showing his acceptance of them. He was showing his grace to them by reaching out and touching them. You know, what, what unclean person can you reach out and touch? This is not an AT&T commercial, if anybody remembers that, from 1987. It was a long time ago. Uh, but, but who can you reach out and, and touch? Who can you tangibly demonstrate acceptance to by acts of love? Go and welcome the unclean in the world's eyes the way that Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us more and more about what you have done for us in Jesus, that, that all of these worldly categories of clean and unclean, of, of shame and honor in this world are irrelevant for us because we have been ritually, symbolically washed in the waters of baptism. We have been spiritually cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we have been anointed with the oil of your Holy Spirit so that we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, you are our Father and we are your children. Help us to revel in that acceptance and help us to show it to others in a way that draws them to your Son as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.